Father, we give you thanks for uh, the team of people who helped set every chair up, uh, who rolled every piece of equipment out that we would be able to gather here. But God, we mostly give you thanks that you promise to be present to your people when we gather. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. We are here to meet with you, to converse with you. Lord, because of what you've done in our lives and your grace, we, uh, we have an audience with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we would hear, that we would listen. God, that you would change our lives to be what you want them to be. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we often think in our culture that we're really busy. We're really uh, hurried folk. And yet I want to contend that there was never a person who walked this earth who had more pressures on them than Jesus did. Uh, He was in great demand by the time he started his public ministry. Uh, So great that there were often just crowds of people waiting in line for Jesus to do something for them. And in the midst of this very demanding life that Jesus lived, um, these lines of people that needed something from him, that oftentimes even just wanted healing from him, uh, how would Jesus respond to this? Well, we are told that Uh, oftentimes he would have compassion on the crowds and he would minister to them. And then there's also times where we're told that in the midst of all the lines of people that Jesus would withdraw and that he would go to a lonely place and that he would pray. Can you believe that? In the midst of all the demands, in fact, even lines of people, Luke chapter 5 tells us that there were lines of people wanting healing from him. And look at what it says in Luke 5. But Jesus often withdrew to solitary places, lonely places, and he prayed. Prayer was the first thing that Jesus did. It wasn't the last. And this pattern of prayer, this way of conversing with his father was so unique and so mesmerizing that his disciples around him said, we want that. Whatever that is, would you teach us how to live like that? In the midst of all the demands on you, in the midst of lines of people waiting for you to do something for them, you're like withdrawing and going and you have this conversational relationship with the God of the universe and you call him Father. Jesus, would you teach us to pray like that? That's the request they made. And Jesus gives them and us this pattern for prayer that many of you, maybe most of you have memorized known as the Lord's Prayer. And we've been in this series looking at phrase by phrase, these little bits of the Lord's Prayer. And it's it's a pretty amazing prayer. I will tell you that if you've never gone and actually tried to study it phrase by phrase like we are, you're missing out because really the whole story of Scripture is right here in this short prayer. And so Jesus, his disciples, is where he's giving this prayer to his disciples, is assuming that they are in on the story. I want you to call God Father is where things begin. And we spent quite a bit of time on that. And last week, Father David led us through this great, significant subject of not only experiencing forgiveness of our own sins, but learning to forgive others. That's no small thing, is it? That's just one little line. The whole story of Scripture is summed up in this prayer. And today we come to this phrase, lead us not into temptation. This is how we know it. This is how it's written in our language and liturgy each week. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that is the most literal way that one might translate the language in which it was originally written. But there are differences in the translation here. 
Um, just to mention a few, we, uh, we read typically from the ESV. The NIV says it that way, but it adds, deliver us from the evil one. Well, that's a little different than just saying evil in general. N.T. Wright's translation, he says, don't bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. The NRSV translation says, and do, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, where he just very simply puts it like this, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Very to the point. I want to look this morning at the three elements that are listed here in this little phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to take them in reverse order. Um, I want to take them in reverse order, and I'm going to ask a question about each of them, okay? So what are we asking to be delivered from? And this is the first question I want to ask, and the answer is the evil one. What are we asking to be delivered from? Now, evil and the evil one may be kind of apparent to most of us, but I bet in this room with this size of people, there's quite a diverse number of opinions about what evil is and if there is or who is the evil one in this space. Um, how did you hear of evil and the evil one growing up as a child? I think children's stories are often foundational texts that we look at pretty complex ideas and try to kind of lay a foundation. And so how did you hear of the evil one as a child? Now, I may be telling on my own generation when I point to Disney and talk about Jafar from Aladdin or Scar from The Lion King or um, a more recent, it's old, but also remade more recently, Maleficent, whose very name, very name actually means one who causes harm or evil. Uh, maybe you watched and heard of evil through films like that, or if maybe you're not a Disney fan, actually this might be Disney now, but the whole Star Wars epic, right? It's like um, uh, the Emperor Palpatine, the, uh, the, the Darth Vader characters. Villains are often the way in which we as a child think about evil and the evil one, like there's bad people or bad villains out there. And actually this isn't totally a bad starting point because this translation is often said, deliver us from the evil one. And the story of Scripture, for those of us who are followers of Christ, it's actually the story of Scripture that shapes our imagination of what evil is and who the evil one is. And so right at the beginning of the story, we know that God in his creation created everything and it was good. It was actually very good. But in the garden, at the inception of the human race, is the evil one. And Genesis tells us that the snake, the serpent, is there deceiving and manipulating and tempting Adam and Eve against God's design for flourishing. It's right there at the beginning of this story. And all the way at the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, we see that Satan, whose very name means the accuser, is the primary enemy in that book of God's people and the enemy of God's plans. And we hear throughout the New Testament like the writer John talking about that we have an advocate with the Father. Well, you know, you only need an advocate if you have an accuser. And it's sort of courtroom imagery. And that's exactly the case. You and I have an accuser. We have an enemy. First Peter, I think this is a helpful passage to understand the problem of evil because First Peter writes, be sober-minded. He's writing to a church that's 
uh, kind of fearful. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So scripture shows us that the problem is there's an evil one. And, and unlike maybe the Disney stories, there's no sympathetic backstory for this evil one. You don't sort of go, oh, well, it's probably because of the trauma in his childhood that he decided to. No, th this is pure evil. And, and First Peter says that he's like a devil prowling around waiting to devour somebody. I, I know we're, we're, we're in Texas. We don't have lions, but you've seen plenty of National Geographic's a, a tan, light brown lying, lion lying in tan, light brown grass is very hard to see. And it wants to remain unseen to its prey. And Peter says that he's like that. The enemy, the evil one is like that. And this is something that you have to understand if you're going to understand this little prayer and how to pray it with Jesus is that evil is not just a bad choice that you make. Evil is not the sum total of the bad choices that we all make together. Evil is a someone who intends to accuse and shame and imprison you. Now, I've taught at great length here over the eight years I've been with you, uh, particularly on this passage, Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, because every season of Lent, we begin on the first Sunday of Lent looking at this particular passage. And we've looked in pretty good detail at the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And so I won't be able to go into all of that because there's not enough time today to do that. But um, what we see is that evil is not just a bad choice that Jesus is being lured by, but it's a someone, it's a person. And his greatest trick is to get you to think that he's not even there. This is a quote from French literary, uh, a, a French literary figure named Charles. I can't pronounce his last name, so I'm not going to try. Uh, Charles, yep. And it was made popular, though, by a movie. This is how we Americans heard of it, The Usual Suspects. And in The Usual Suspects, it says this, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Or maybe like the sermon I preached years ago on deception, afterwards a person came up to me and said, Brian, do you think somebody can be deceived and not even know it? <laughs> yes. I firmly believe that somebody be, can, can be deceived and not even know it. That's, that's the nature of it. That's how it works. Now, there's other sources we might go to to understand this, but Scripture's really clear that this is the way the evil one works. Genesis 4 the problem of envy has entered his brother's heart. And he says, sin is crouching at your door. This is really helpful. Think about that lion over in the corner of your bedroom or your front, just acting like it's not there. Not going to hurt you. No, no, it wants to devour you. The nature of the evil one is it hides, it deceives. It acts like it's not even there. And if we're going to effectively pray and join Jesus in this prayer of saying, deliver us from the evil one, we have to avoid the two common extremes that are present here. Uh, one extreme when it comes to this subject of talking about the evil one is to basically say, he's not even there, doesn't really even exist. Uh, let me say it a different way. It's no big deal. That, that little thing in my life or your life or in our community life or in our national life, 
that, that little thing, it's not really a big deal. That's one of the extreme responses to the problem of the evil one is we conclude first, it's not really that big of a deal. We got to avoid that extreme. Part of what Jesus is teaching us as his children is to pray, Father, would you deliver us from the evil one? Acknowledging it for acknowledging him and it for what they are in our lives. So we don't do that first extreme, but neither do we do the second. Here's the second extreme. We give the devil way too much credit than he deserves. Once he's seen, what will often happen in your life and my life is we'll look at that challenge of evil and we'll say, it's too much. I just have to give in. It's too powerful. There's no hope for me to overcome it or to run from it. It's just totally overpowering me and you and us. And so we just sort of give in. So either we deny it and say he's no big deal, or we just say, oh, wow, now we see it and it's too much for us to bear. Jesus wants to avoid those two extremes. Evil is a someone. It's not just a bad choice or the sum total of bad choices. Evil wants to hide and act like it's not even there. It's not even present in your life. But evil, once seen, wants to pretend that it's too big for you. It's too big for anyone. So we're invited here to pray. Father, deliver us from the evil one. You can't pray with Jesus if you don't take the evil one seriously. What are we asking to be delivered from? We're asking to to be delivered from the evil one. His work of deception and trickery and hiding. Father, would you deliver us from that? Secondly, second question. Well, then what is temptation? So we're taking them in reverse order, evil. What is temptation? And why is temptation so powerful for, on, on, on us and for us? Uh, when we pray this prayer, Lord, deliver, lead us not into temptation, I think it's kind of a confusing way to say it because it can be misleading and confusing to us. So this phrase is not us saying, you know, God, lead me today to the place where I experience no friction, no challenges, just easy life. That's not what we're praying. We're not praying, God, lead me into a day where I don't face any real challenges. When we say, deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation, there's kind of two sides to that coin. One is that we're saying, save us from from ourselves, the wrong desires that are inside each and every one of us. That's one side of what we're praying. And the other side of this same prayer is, also, Lord, would you save us and deliver us from the evil that's outside of us and pressing upon us? It's both and. It's not either or. And there's obvious, undisguised temptations that come from within and from without. Like, there's obvious ones. And some of you might be thinking right now, this is primarily a talk about the obvious things. You know, like one obvious one would be that if you are married, you have covenanted for a lifetime to a spouse, and you enter into a physical or emotional relationship with another person, the obvious thing in God's design for flourishing is that that that's an obvious temptation that might come from both inside and outside of you, but it's kind of the obvious one. I'm not saying that you or I can't be duped by the obvious sins. I'm just saying that one's kind of plain to see. Or it might be obvious to think about the evil that would come in from outside of us, like, you know, God protect us from 
uh, a marauding army of infidels coming to harm the whole village or an active shooter situation. Like there's evil out there and God, would you protect us from that obvious evil? But what I wanna point out this morning, this week, as we look at it together in this time and place is that it's not just the obvious things, but the things that are often hidden, the things that we often don't see This prayer covers those as well because we know that the evil one wants to hide, wants to pretend as if it's no big deal, not even there. This was so clear way back in Genesis that uh, he, he deceived Adam and Eve by showing them, you know, this is actually food that's pretty good food and it's really pleasing to the eye and it, it can make one wise. And all of this is a way of demanding certain things on your own timetable that are outside of God's design for you. If any of you who are musicians might have heard this in music class that uh, the right note at the wrong time is still the wrong note. As you grow up in Christ, as you grow up as a disciple, what you'll come to be more aware of are not just the obvious sins and evil, that's both inside and outside, but you'll become more aware of the subtlety, the way in which sin crouches at the door of your life. I I love, you guys know that I really enjoy reading C.S. Lewis, and he's got a text that's very famous on this subject of evil and temptation uh, called The Screwtape Letters, the whole book. Uh, But there's one passage in particular I'd like to read it. He says, uh, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the person away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And as you grow up as a disciple, you come to realize not just the obvious things that we must avoid, but the not so obvious. Envy, for example. Envy. You know how common envy is? Envy is one of the classic seven deadly sins. And it's so common in our culture that we've become like really comfortable with it. You know, like I've been to countries before where like you come to a traffic stop and there's like everybody's got AK-47s. And I'm like, man, what's going on? The, the natives are like totally used to this. This is just part of life. You and I can become that way with certain sins that become more socially acceptable in our culture than others. And, and envy is one of those. Um, advertising is built on envy. Social media, one of the reasons we've got such rampant anxiety problems and depression problems is, is how rampant envy is within the, the features of it. Um, you know, pastors are, are kind of generalist. And I don't know if you know that, but like we're not like hand surgeons um, or elbow surgeons. We, we take care of a lot. We're like a, a primary care sort of doctor, if you will. Uh, we're, we're generalist and, and our, our, our profession's really confusing to people. Um, you know, one, one pastor said that every time he came home on Sunday afternoon, his unchurched neighbor would say, ha ha, finished with your half day of work a week, pastor. And he, under his breath, he would curse at his neighbor for saying that. Um, confusing on Sunday and confounding. Invis- Anyways, pastor, the profession of pastors is a confusing profession in our culture. It used to be a pretty well-respected profession. It's not anymore. 
Um, if you need examples of that, talk to me afterwards. Well, I went to go see uh, a physician for my elbow problem over these last few years. And I walked in, and this dude was like 41 and handsome and athletic and had like a staff of 20 people sort of orbiting around him. And he's a specialist. I had a shoulder problem. He said, I don't do shoulders. I do elbows. You're, if you, I can help you with that one problem. And the prestige or his, his photo was in the, the, like, I went into the hospital and his photo was in the, the uh, lobby. And, you know, there's articles in D Magazine about him. And you know what started to happen in my heart? All this envy started to, to bubble up. I, well, well, what about my life? And this, this is what Indy does, is you start to compare your life to other people's lives. And, and, you know, I'm ashamed to even tell you I was doing this. I don't think I've, I'm not real proud of it, but that's the way it works. And I want to give an example. It worked on me and, and it was not obvious. It was like, oh, I think I might need to pay attention to that. Father, why did that bother me? Why, why did I compare to this person so much? Envy, lust, pride, sloth, if you go through the classic list. What about you? What about you? I, I want to tell you that if you don't have holy friends in your life who will challenge the sins you've come to love, you, you, won't, you won't do this work. A holy friend will challenge the sins, not that you already hate, but the, the sins you've come to love, the sins you've come to be really comfortable with. You need community in your life to be honest about these things. Um, James, the apostle that we heard read, makes it really clear that temptation and trials are going to be part of our lives. And that uh, here in verse 13 through 15, uh, he makes it really clear that um, God is not the source of temptation. He sets that record straight because to say, lead us not into temptation, kind of seems like we're suggesting that maybe God's the one that does this to us. And James makes it really clear, no one tempted. You can't say God is tempting for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, so what's the source? Well, Satan is the source, but James is showing us that he's not the force. The force of temptation comes from inside of us. Part of being a part of that tree that is the human race is that there is a fallenness to every leaf. And inside of us, we are we are prone to wonder. There is a, a bent in on ourselves. And so, James says in verse 14, each one is tempted when by their own evil desire, they're dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James is using language that helps us to see it takes two to tango when it comes to evil. And you can't pray this prayer with Jesus, like Jesus, if we don't take the evil one seriously, if we don't take the power of temptation seriously and realize it both wells up within us and it's often hidden, small, subtle, the soft ground underfoot, Lewis writes. And so we need to be watchful. We need a community around us. We need to want to live a life that's wholly given over to God you can't pray with Jesus if we don't get real about temptation. Okay, so evil's real. Temptation is powerful. powerful, And so, ah, throw up your hands. It's just too hard. This is what, what I have done in my own life at times and what I've observed my brothers and sisters doing way too often. Evil is so powerful. Temptation is so powerful. 
that I conclude I just have to give in. I have to create a life that just sort of accepts that it's going to have this, this, this part of my life will be imprisoned and will experience shame indefinitely. I, I want you to hear Jesus' words to his disciples. When he says this in John 16, he says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace in me. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trial, Jesus says. But look at what he says. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So the third question, and the most important, well, deliverance. We've talked about evil. We've talked about temptation. Oh, shucks, this is just our life. No, there is a power. There is deliverance available. And I want to end by reminding you of the promises of God when it comes to our experience, our lived experience right now. This is what Jesus hopes for us. He wants you to know that there's always a way out of temptation. You know this classic passage from 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common. There's no new tricks. They all follow the pattern of what happens in Genesis, by the way. He's just really crafty at repackaging the same stuff. No temptation has seized you except what's common. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. Most importantly, and this is why I referred to the Luke 4 almost series of sermons that we've looked at, Jesus conquers sin and temptation. He even conquers death by what he does, both in the wilderness all the way to the cross and over the grave. You've heard of original sin. Jesus is the original anti-sin. He overcomes evil by being totally faithful. And he feels the full weight of temptation. And so, and this is really important. Jesus looks you and I right in the eyes and he understands what you're going through. Now, where's that coming from? How could I make such a claim? Well, there's a lumber of reasons, one of which is this is what he does in the life of his apostles. He looks at all of them. He says, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to betray me. One writer, the gospel writer John, actually tells us there's a moment after Peter has fallen away where Jesus catches eyes with Peter. And until you encounter the look of your deliverer looking right into the moment of your betrayal, your sin, or even your shame, and saying, all will be well. I am your deliverer. I have overcome the evil one, Jesus says. He suffered. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So you and I can pray with confidence. Lead me not into this place of being overwhelmed by temptation, but Jesus, deliver me from the evil one. Evil is real. Temptation is powerful but God is our deliverer. So, the very area of your struggle and temptation, like the place in which you feel like there is more darkness in my life in this area than any other, that's the area God wants to enter into and show you his proficiency, his abundance poured out for you. Um, it is his work. This is what he does, is he brings wholeness in the places that are the darkest, most broken. I was reminded by meeting a friend from Phoenix this morning about a trip, and I'm going to end with this, uh, a trip that we made out west. Uh, several years ago, 
I was in a, not a good place. I was not well. Uh, the, what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 40 today uh, and in other places about just sort of being down in the muck and the mire, I was in the darkest place that I had ever been personally. And with my um, mother and father-in-law and my bride, we took out on a trip to Phoenix area. And uh, I look, I'm from West Texas, but I didn't really know what a desert was until I made it to Phoenix. And uh, we got out to Phoenix, and we just happened to have traveled at that time when the desert bloom had begun. If you've never seen this, it is an amazing, not only sight to see, but the, the smell of the air. And that began a journey for me. It didn't happen that week. Uh, I was uh, under the shadow of so much darkness. I didn't see it that week, but I began to get a glimpse that what God wanted to do in my life, and I believe this is what he does in his children's life, is he brings beauty, he brings blooms, he brings water in the desert places. The very area in which you think, this is too big. I've gone too far. It's too powerful. That's the area that he wants to produce new resurrection life in you and in me. And so, Heavenly Father, lead us not into the place where we are overwhelmed by temptation, but good Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And as we come to your table, would you pour out your goodness and grace on we, your children, as we receive your provision for every trial, every temptation, every tribulation that is coming our way. Oh, Father, may you provide that which we need and especially for those right now that are in a place of being overwhelmed by sin or shame, Holy Spirit, would you minister to them and us this morning? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.